Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is the Talking Tactics Podcast. My name is Daniel Tula. Boy, how cool, powerful, double double friendly, friendly, just trying to stay alive. This is our World Cup preview. Um, yep. We've done... Every four group, years. Group A, B, C, D, and E already in the past week. So go back and listen to those if you haven't already. So, so this is going to be Group F. Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at Talking Tactics, Instagram, Facebook, SoundCloud, the same. Remember to leave iTunes reviews. If it's five stars, we'll read it on the show in a couple weeks. I'm at Daniel to look. Have hope working the people find you quickly. You can find your boy Double H at Half Hope Hot. Indeed. So let's get into this. Group F Sweden, Germany, South Korea, and Mexico. Um, Mexico, Mexico, Mexico. I didn't feel that one coming like I did with Spain. <laughs> 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 but yeah, uh, so let's let's start with Mexico. El Tri, as the locals call them. I always enjoy Mexico. Same. Um, they've been to the round of 16, I think, every year or every World Cup, rather, since 1994. But they haven't advanced past the, the round of 16 since or at all. So it does kind of stand to reason that they probably finish second behind Germany and then lose in the round of 16. So they, so they face Group E. They would face the winners of Group E. Oh, shit. Brazil. So, yeah, they might just continue their streak of 94, 98, 2002, 2006, 2010. They're, they're, they're going to try to win the group, man. But then, like, are, are FIFA going to allow Germany Brazil in the second round? No way. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, look, it's just happening. Yeah, man, Mexico. I mean, they're, they're in trouble, I guess, in that way. It's either you, you have to beat Germany and finish top. What if they beat Brazil in the second round, man? Or what if Brazil kind of mess up and they finish second which won't happen yeah. that that that's mexico's best chance so yeah i mean mexico's always a good team to watch you know they have the likes of chicharito and i think rafa marquez is going to be there for like his 67th yeah, they, consecutive the world cup so crazy peralta peralta the broom the brush something his yeah, nickname is something like that not, well, well i mean he, he looks he looks like like, like he, he could beat you up so <laughs> Yo, I might I might watch the the World Cup with on the on the Mexican channels that they're just TV channels, but they call them the Mexican. I mean, I don't really take anything from from the English commentary, so maybe I just might have some fun uh, watching it on like Univision or some channel like that. But yeah, this is our interview that we had with Cesar Hernandez at Cesar H Football, who does the the Mexican soccer show. Um, I think that's on YouTube. Um, but yeah, this is our conversation that we have with Cesar. So hopefully you guys enjoy. 
Yeah, so Cesar Hernandez, a freelance writer who has covered Mexican soccer for ESPN FC, Vice Sports, 442. Then I also am a co-host of uh, the Mexican Soccer Show. There's always been potential for Mexican soccer to be bigger than what it is. When you look at the population of Mexico, when you look at the significance that soccer has for Mexico, you would think that the national team or the league would be a little bit better. You'd think they would have a little bit more recognition. But Liga Mekis outside of North America, it's not exactly massive. When you look at the Mexican national team, you can also say outside of North America hasn't exactly done very well. I mean, outside of the only thing that they've won outside of North America is the 1999 Confederations Cup. But you do think when you look at their track record, the national team in the World Cup, they've made it out of the group stage for every World Cup since 1994. But of course, they've never reached the quarterfinals either during that run since 1994. So when I think of Mexican soccer, I think of something that has a lot of potential, whether it be the league or whether it be the national team, there's a lot of potential and it has hasn't reached that point we all want it to reach, but it's there. There's something there. Mm, so if you could kind of run me through kind of qualification, how would you describe that? Uh, the last qualification process for 2014, Mexico finished in fourth place. They had to go one of those interconfederation playoffs against New Zealand to qualify for the 2014 World Cup. But this time around, it was it was much smoother uh, for Mexico. They really dominated uh, the hex. You got six teams and the top three qualify for the World Cup and the fourth goes to the Interconfederation playoff. But Mexico went through with you know six wins, uh, three draws and one loss. And that one loss didn't show up until the very, very last match day. If I remember correctly, it was a, it was a three to two away loss to Honduras. Uh, so they nearly went undefeated. So, I mean, the the hex was a breeze for Mexico. I mean, they, they were able to qualify fairly easily, uh, showcase the fact that they are, uh, I mean, other teams are growing, but for now, they're the they're the best national team in in North America. What are the expectations then for like a relatively good team who's performed well in qualification? Obviously, you say like for the past six World Cups, I think that would be that they've made the run of 16, but they haven't progressed. Maybe we can blame Robin for that. <laughs> but uh, what what are the expectations for this World Cup? I think the expectation for now is just to to reach past the group stage. Of course, uh, there's something called the quinto partido in relation to everything we've been talking about. I think the quinto partido, which is uh, which translates to the fifth game. So, and that fifth game is playing the quarterfinal stage. I think I think you would say a successful World Cup, whether it be for media, whether it be for fans, they would say is to reach the round of 16. A failure would be to be knocked out of the group stage. And especially when you look at the group stage, I know, I mean, it, I, I highly anticipate the fact that Germany is going to top that group. But when you look at South Korea, you look at Sweden, I think most feel that Mexico is better than those two sides. And after talking to some fellow journalists uh, who cover South Korean soccer, who cover Swedish soccer as well, you do get the sense too that they also see Mexico as the second best team of this group. So I think when you discuss expectations, I think leaving uh, through the group stage would be seen as a failure. And I think round of 16 uh, is the goal. Would it exactly be thrilling? Would it exactly be seen as a failure? But of course, the most exciting thing uh, for Mexico fans is reaching that quinto partido, that fifth game, that quarterfinal match. Whether that's going to happen, I don't, it's highly unlikely. And they'll probably have to face Brazil in the round of 16 when you're looking at uh, who they'll probably have to face. But then again, Mexico has traditionally done all right against Brazil. But still, I mean, it's not easy to face. But let's not pretend that Mexico is better than Brazil is far <laughs> superior. But that will be more than likely the scenario, which would be a very difficult for one for Mexico uh, in the round of 16. Um, Osorio and, and how he views football. Like, what, what is the formation that you guys are playing? Are you playing 4-3-3, 4-4-2, 4-2-3-1? How does it look? 
Well, I mean, Osorio, uh, he's a polarizing figure in Mexican soccer just because he has proven to be more unpredictable, more tactically flexible than other Mexican coaches. So a lot of Mexican media, a lot of Mexican soccer fans see him as a mad scientist, <laughs> that despite the fact that he has done well in qualifying. He's a very, very polarized people. People really dislike him just because he does tend to tinker. He does tend to sometimes play players out of position. But in general, there are you do recognize patterns and you do recognize with certain players in certain formations. He tends to like, you would say, a high-pressing 4-3-3 with one defensive midfielder. That kind of makes it look more like a 3-4-3 in attack. And against tougher opponents, you do see him utilize a little bit more of a defensive-minded 4-2-3-1. So against Germany, I wouldn't be surprised if Mexico utilize that 4-2-3-1. And against South Korea and Sweden, I think you'll see that 4-3-3 with one defensive midfielder that will look more like a 3-4-3. But maybe if they somehow pull off a draw against Germany and defeat South Korea, maybe the Osodia won't be so eager to push forward. So I would say in general, like 4-3-3 with one D mid that looks more like a 3-4-3 in the attack. And then against tough opponents, you'll see that uh, 4-2-3-1. Um, Rafa Marquez is still a thing. He's still a thing. <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, he's still a thing. Whether he's going to get minutes, I don't know. He still carries a lot of weight, the national team. I think he's still, he's a living icon for not even just Mexican sports, but just Mexico in general. And I think that he'll probably have more something more so of a leadership role in the national team. I don't, I'd be surprised to see him involved in more than one match. You never know with Osorio, he might actually utilize him in a, in a game in the starting 11. I don't think that'll happen. But Rafa, a living icon who continues to remain relevant. And I think that's just been the conversation regarding Rafa Marquez for, I think, the past few years. Everyone thinks that it's his time to to retire. It's a time to retire. It's a time to retire. And he just continues playing. He continues to remain relevant. Although he, I will say he has played his last game for his club, Atlas. So all signs point to him retiring to this World Cup. Second player, Chicharito Hernandez. Now, what is the confidence level in Chicharito, you would say, with L3 fans? Regardless of what happens uh, or what has happened abroad, he's still continued to do well. Uh, for the national team. And we've seen that. I mean, it, it's happened before in the past when he was still with United. I mean, he had that brilliant start, but uh, he kind of had some off seasons as well, as well, but he still did well at the national team. Uh, we saw that in his second season with Bayer Leverkusen. It wasn't exactly as exciting as the first, but he still did well with the national team. So I think regardless of what happened abroad, I, I do think that fans still feel fairly confident about him. There is another, and he's lucky too, that the backup striker, Raul Jimenez, hasn't exactly gotten a, a lot of minutes uh, with Benfica. If Jimenez had a starting role at Benfica, then maybe things would be a little bit more interesting to figure out who would be taking that lone striker position. But I think that Chicharito, I mean, it's tough to say that he's uh, the symbol of the Mexican national team when you have someone like Rafa Marquez there. But if Rafa Marquez wasn't there, then everyone would be looking to Chicharito. Just I mean, clearly he's Mexico's all-time leading goal scorer. Clearly we know his capability abilities, how well he does uh, uh, with those opportunities really close to net. So I think that regardless of what's happened broad, I still think that Chicharito looks like he's going to be given the start. And I wouldn't be surprised if he were to do well, because he does seem like a fairly mature, kind of level-headed guy. You you've never seen him as someone who would kind of like lose his head or be a little immature about everything that's happened. So I do think that he'd be fine. And he looks he looks mentally like, well, heading into the World Cup too, despite what's happened with West Ham, which hasn't exactly <laughs> been ideal for him. All right, and, and speaking of somebody who's had like a really, really good season that I don't know that much about because I don't watch the Dutch League, but everyone who watches the Dutch League and watches PSV tells me this guy's really good. So, Herving Lozano, hopefully I'm yeah. pronouncing that right. Irving Lozano, that's close, that's close. Irving okay. El, El, El Chucky. Uh, Lozano. Is this the player that everyone should be watching in terms of Mexico? Yeah, I think if you're thinking about a potential 
breakout player who is Mexican, and I think it has to be Chucky, Chucky Lozano. He's had the nickname Chucky. He's embraced it because apparently back in his uh, uh, younger days with his uh, with his teammates, he used to on away games he used to hide under beds and scare <laughs> his teammates. So they started calling him Chucky, and it's just something he's just completely embraced. And uh, but you see that with PSV as well, like posting gifts of Chuck, uh, like Chucky, whenever <laughs> he scores a goal. But yeah, but no, Irving Lozano, seventeen goals and eight assists in his first Eredivisie season. He's only 22 years old. He's a risk taker uh, that Mexico needs. He has an incredible amount of pace. He has excellent control of the ball. He's technically, he's brilliant. And there's just, there's an immense amount of potential there for him to not only do well in European soccer, but also at the World Cup. So that's definitely a guy that people should be uh, keeping an eye on, especially since I, in a recent friendly with Belgium, I mean, Lozano just took charge, uh, got a couple goals. It's clear that he could step up against bigger opposition. And it's going to be really exciting to see what happens. And who knows what's going to happen too with a potential transfer of not saying it's going to happen, but 22-year-old guy who's killing it in the Eredivisie and does well in the World Cup. Teams mm. are probably going to be very, very eager to sign someone like that. So I think there should be a lot of motivation for Chucky to do well in the World Cup, too. Cool. All right. So who do you think is going to win the World Cup? Ooh, that is that is a question, isn't it? Uh, it it's going to be Germany. Just the amount of depth that they have is incredible. I mean, mm. it's just like it's staggering there's no doubt that they are the current superpower. I wouldn't be surprised if France goes far. Wouldn't be surprised if Spain go far either. Of course, you got to add in Brazil too, but that's assuming that they defeat Mexico, <laughs> which I don't, which I don't like admitting, but it's very, very likely if that happens. But I think I, I'm, I'm sticking with Germany. I'm just incredibly like envious of everything regarding that national team. So I'm going to say Germany. All right. And last question. Is there anything I haven't asked you about Mexican football that you feel like people should know or might want to know? Uh, yeah, just, I mean, I know it might be a little difficult, uh, to find matches abroad, but I mean, just don't, don't sleep on the, on Mexican soccer, right? It's just such a, it's it, especially the league as well. And a league that is set up, we have two seasons in one year, you have playoffs. So it's high, you know, high pressing attack minded, just really, really, it's honestly, it's the most entertaining soccer league, I think of the world. I, and I think that it's very, very undervalued. Uh, the league itself is a, done a poor job of trying to globalize. I think a lot of things within the league need to be changed in order for it to get more attention but hopefully that gets more attention and therefore it could potentially help the way that people view mexican soccer but of course when we're talking about the national team too i think yeah don't sleep on l3 either you know some some players have said i don't know some things which are a little too far-fetched and saying that like oh yeah we could win the title mexico's not gonna win the title can mexico make it to the quarterfinal stage though yeah yeah i, I think they can and for, for a lot of fans, that would be seen as a massive, massive success because my entire life, I've always seen Mexico in every single World Cup I've seen. They've always been knocked out in the same exact spot in the round of 16. So I think it would be pretty cool to see them make it to a, a quarterfinal stage. And for Mexican soccer fans, I, I know I know that's not exactly ideal for other national teams, but for the Mexican national team, a spot in the quarterfinals would be, that's like close to us winning the World Cup right there. <laughs> I think that's You're being spoiled. Cool. You're being spoiled, okay? Like, as, as, <laughs> personally, as someone who's half Canadian, Idiot and half Ugandan who's yeah. never ever in life ever <laughs> seen my team in the World Cup. You guys get into six straight round of 16s. Like, yeah, you should accept that. But I kind of get your point. It's true. It's true. It's something that Mexican fans have to keep in mind. Take a step back and realize like how incredible that is. But at the same time, it's so bitter. It's so bittersweet. Yeah. It's so incredibly bittersweet. Do you want to go Sweden or do you want to go South Korea? Yeah, let's Sweden. Sweden. Let's just do it. Let's do Sweden. Let's let's do Sweden. Okay. No Zlatan. They qualified without him. He shouldn't even be in the conversation. The key thing is Forsberg. He was injured towards the end of the season, so they have to hope that Forsberg can make it because he's crucial. Without Forsberg, they should fall forfeit. But with Forsberg, 
yeah, man, who knows what, what they can do on 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 the slide slide. Like, I think if Forspec is there, <laughs> look, man, they 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 they, 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 they can say what's up to to Mexico, man. I don't know. I I think I think the the absence of Zlatan Ibrahimovic is a big deal. If only no, no, because no, no, one one kidding. one we miss a star from the World Cup, which is a really? shame. But they qualified with without him though, so it's like you know, all things are possible through Zlatan. Look, I'm it's personally for me. I'm not I'm not discussing Zlatan because he shouldn't even <laughs> be discussed. So, based on how this team were able to do something so incredible by flipping knocking out Italy without Zlatan, I think they deserve to be credited by just us focusing on them rather than a guy who had nothing to, to do with them. That's fair. That's fair. I feel you on that one. I mean, I guess this is where we kind of talk a little bit about Italy not being in the World Cup. <sighs> uh, it's weird, no, no, isn't I'm, it? No, no, no. I'm gonna like it's gonna be very weird. Like. Netherlands, I'm, I've been getting used to not seeing the Netherlands in tournaments and so forth. Italy is going to be very weird. Italy always presents that thing of they, they, they never lose normally. It's always something that's controversial and they always end up crying and they're blaming the referee or blaming something. <laughs> so that aspect I'm going to really miss. So, you know, look, it's, it's going to be weird. I mean, it's Italy are not going to be in the bloody World Cup. That is crazy. Do you know, do you know, every time I was like uh, just trying to do all the interviews for the groups, I was just like, okay, so who do I need for Italy? Oh, yeah, they didn't make it. <laughs> it was like a, a, every week I was like, I need an Italy. No, you don't. I don't need an Italy guy. Uh, but yeah, Sweden did a good job in qualification. Um, in the second round, they knocked out Italy. They had Buffon in tears. Imagine that group of Brazil, Italy, and Mexico. No, 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 sorry, of Germany, Italy, Mexico. That'd be crazy. Yeah, man, it's just it's just gonna be super strange, isn't it? I mean, the first time in I think sixty years that Italy aren't gonna make the World Cup. It's just super strange, but I guess they kind of deserved it. Um, ironically speaking, actually, the guy we got for Sweden runs sempreinter.com, so he knows Italian football, but he's lived in Sweden basically his whole life. So this is our guy Nima from I believe Gothenburg in Sweden, and hopefully you guys enjoy the conversation, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. My name is Nima Tawale Rutsari. I'm the founder of Semprinto.com. Uh, we're the biggest uh, Inter news website in English in the world. We, we provide 24-7 coverage of Inter Milan. I've also worked for Calciomercato.com, Gianluca Di Marzio, and Gold.com. My Twitter handle is at Nima, T-A-V-R-O-O-D. I'm bo born in Iran, but raised in Sweden since I was three years old. So I've been living here for 34 years. And, and Swedish football, uh, although I don't work with it, I, I consume it and have, and have lived close to it all my life. The league is the 24th, 25th top-ranked uh, league in Europe. It's a league that has been severely hurt by the Bosman ruling, which basically left all Swedish clubs losing all their talents at a really early stage to European bigger clubs with more money, which uh, has hurt uh, the domestic league a lot which has prevented Swedish teams from, from competing on an international scale. I mean, obviously, the glaring exceptions recent years being Östersund, who went through from the group stages of the Europa League, and Malmö FF, who were the last Swedish team to play in the Champions League. But before that, if you look in the 80s and 90s, you can see that I mean, IFK Gothenburg, my hometown club, won the UEFA Cup, 82 and 87, played regularly in the Champions League. But pretty much since that, Swedish league football has really has, has had huge, huge difficulties. However, at the same time, there's a a big pool of Swedish talent who've been coming through players born late 90s early 2000s with that being exemplified by Sweden winning the under 21 European Championships a couple of years ago Sweden finished third in the under 17 World Cup a few years ago the Swedish national team and the Swedish talent pool is very big and is, is doing pretty good 
How did Sweden's qualification go? As you say, they have a lot of young, good talent. How was that process to get into the World Cup? This was the first post-Slatan Ibrahimovic Swedish national team. I mean, Ibrahimovic been dominating Swedish football and Swedish national team football for the past decade. And it was pretty much, unfortunately, Swedish football reverted back to its old sins, basically, which I guess you could say is a good thing in the sense that Sweden has always traditionally been known for a hardworking collective, not so much flair, not so much technique, but a very solid defense. Uh, we're organized, good defending, closing down opponents. And and uh, conceding very few goals. Classic Swedish 4-4-2. Swedish football is incredibly influenced by English football from the 17s and onwards with people like Bob Houghton and Roy Hodgson introducing the English style into Swedish uh, club football and which also the national team adopted from the mid-80s and onwards with the glaring exception being the decade of Ibrahimovic where because Sweden had such a world-class talent they adapted to him. So Sweden's World Cup was very similar to the post-Slatan era for those those who are old enough to remember that in that it was a very organized team defensively solid not so many talented players in fact quite a few mediocre players and mediocre talent but very well organized and managed to go through the group despite losing and drawing with Netherlands but they beat France at home lost unluckily away and they managed to take all those other points that were really important and finish second in the group and then obviously they played and Italy who were in total free fall and managed to defeat Italy by the 1-0, the only goal they scored over the two legs, which ended 1-0 in aggregate. As, as someone who works intimately with Italian football, specifically Inter Milan, did you have any inkling or notice that Sweden were going to beat Italy? I, I, I told everyone that the biggest nightmare draw for Italy would be Sweden. Italy were in complete disarray and Sweden are an organized team. Because the thing is with Italy, the Italian national team, there has to, it has to work. Like either all of it works or nothing works. It's really <laughs> either or. And under uh, Ventura, it would look like a complete disgrace from the beginning to the end. He was clearly not the right fit for the job. So I was, I was adamant that Sweden were going to def- defeat Italy. Unfortunately, I was right. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, okay, so you have a team that, as you say, has good players outside of the domestic league. They did generally well in qualification and they beat Italy. So all that combined, what would you say are the expectations for Sweden going into the World Cup group? Everyone has their boogie team, so to speak. Sweden has always, always struggled against Germany because Germany are good at everything Sweden is, but with the added flavor of having fantastic world-class talent. Sweden's like a poor man's Germany. So Germany is is, is a game where Sweden is not counting on getting anything. Um, they, they, they're probably just going to sit back and defend for the entire game. Mexico is a game they feel that they can do something if they have a good day. And the thing with Mexico is you never really know because Mexico is, you know, on their day, they can beat anyone in the world. And when it comes to South Korea, South Korea are a good team, but Sweden, that's a team that Sweden feels they want to win, they need to defeat and they should defeat pretty, pretty comfortably, they feel. If they beat South Korea in that game, then there is no expectation on them as such, other than uh, to do well. And Sweden does well when they're not under pressure. It's when Sweden are under pressure that they usually fail. This is going to lead me somewhere, but I kind of want to get this left-hand topic out of the way. Did you expect him to go to the World Cup or are you happy he's not going to the World Cup? What is the general view in Sweden in that way? Um, I think I have to quote uh, Gianluigi Buffon when he was asked a really ridiculous question on Swedish TV ahead of the World Cup qualifiers because this is a debate in Sweden and some 
Swedish journalists asked him if he thinks Sweden is a better team without Ibrahimovic, to which Buffon reacted in the only way a sane person would react to such a stupid question, and that is to laugh and say, guys, come on, what are you talking about? Ibra is one of the best players in the world. There is no way that he could make a team worse by being there. And that's my stance on it. I think that if Slatan wanted to go to the World Cup, he would have gone to the World Cup. However, I think that he's clever enough to understand that I mean, after that serious injury, his legs can't take that anymore, and the World Cup would be would he would he would leave a bad taste in people's mouths. And he values his legacy, and he's a very proud person. He his morals are very important to him. His integrity he has a lot of integrity, and he didn't want to taint that when he when he decided that he wasn't going to go. To me, it was all up to him. He decided that he didn't want to go. And also, the Swedish national team manager and Slatan don't get along. Some people here in Sweden say that's the only reason that they hired Jan Andersson was to end the Slatan era definitively because they wanted to move on. However, I would have loved to see Slatan Ibrahimovic at the World Cup. I think it's a shame that we only got to see him once in 2006, and that was after a very difficult season with Juventus where he was injured for most of the season, and Juventus subsequently being relegated to the Serie B because of the Calciopoli bribery scandal. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's sad to see that a player of his caliber never really got to show his best at the biggest stage, which is the World Cup. Everyone and anyone who likes football would love to see Ibrahimovic. That's the biggest Swedish player in the world perhaps all time is there anyone that people don't know about that you think this is their time to shine on a kind of international stage i mean when i look at that team i it's a very boring team but if i got to choose a few players ludwig augustinsson the left back who plays in bundesliga he's a player who who i think will do really really well victor nilsson lindelof who's had a dreadful season at manchester united i think he wants to show who where he's at and how well how good he actually is so so those are the players that i'm I'm looking at, but when you when you look at it up front, I mean, Toivonen, Marcus Barry, Guidetti, Isakisa Tillin. These are these are very limited players, but they function well in a system. A player like Marcus Barry could probably score three, four goals, and so could John Guidetti if he's fit and he gets to play. The leader of this team is the central defender Andreas Granqvist, who's played for Krasnodar. He's returned to his hometown club of Helsingborg. But it's a very it's a very homogenous group. It's, it doesn't have any highs and lows. It's just a very very solid mediocre team. Who's no going to win the World Cup? I've, uh, I, I'm going to say uh, Portugal. Cristiano Ronaldo, this is his last big tournament, if you ask me. He's He's got a fourth position, fourth place from 2006 when he was a kid. Uh, since then, he's always really been injured and not been able to perform. And this season, you can see that he's conserving himself. He's not the Ronaldo of old who used to maraud down the wings. Now he's much more of a classic number nine. And that's something that I think can take Portugal a long, long way. I think if Ronaldo Ronaldo's taken that number nine position and made it his own, and he does not need many chances to score. He's, he's an unbelievable finisher. I mean, you don't win the Champions League top goal scorer. You don't become that six years in a row by chance. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's just insane. The guy's stats are, are just insane. That doesn't happen to you by chance. And Portugal will play very tight defensively, and they will try to counter. And uh, I think this is a this is a tournament where Ronaldo wants to really put he really wants to end the debate of who is better than him and Messi so for me for me it's Portugal I think Portugal no one's counting on them there's no pressure on them but you have to remember these are the reigning European champs 
Portugal are going to play classic Italian football, so to speak, and kind of catenaccio themselves to the final. And I think they'll win there. Interesting. Okay. Uh, last question. Is there anything I haven't asked you about Sweden or the Swedish national team that you find particularly interesting that you think people might want to know or should know? Oh, um, I mean, well, it's pretty interesting in the sense that um, if you look at the Swedish national team, it's the league that has uh, provided the most players, either present or previously, is the Serie A. And that's an interesting aspect, which, in my opinion, suggests that this is a group of players that are tactically very well educated and very well drilled, you know, because the Serie A is a very tactical league. Um, so Sweden will be a very difficult team to break down. This is a team that does not concede a lot of goals, never falls apart, and they play as a team. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Sweden went to the second round. However, it will end there because uh, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> no, I mean, Brazil is the favorite to win the group in the in the other uh, group that they'll play. Brazil is Sweden's kryptonite. Sweden has never defeated Brazil in a competitive game. So I think it'll end there. So let's go South Korea. One real star, right? In Hong Ming Son. Actually, there's I think that there's a there's a really up and comer that plays in Bundesliga, but I've forgotten his name. You 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 don't have it offhand? No. Okay. Um, I don't really know that much. I I still don't outside of Hyung Ming Son. I think something really interesting that you guys will get to hear once we give you our interview that that uh that I did with Steve, uh Steve Price. Well, you know what? I don't even want to ruin it. I'm just gonna let you guys hear it. So this is this is our conversation with Steve. Uh, so hi, my name's Steve Price, and uh, my Twitter handle is KLeagueFootball. And uh, I've been writing about Korean football for about five years or so, and yeah, covered a national team. And I do the national team reports for the FIFA website during the live matches. Uh, so yeah, I've yeah, watched a lot of uh, the national team football. Yeah, so I mean, you actually picked quite a, a good day to do this podcast because the national team announced their, their lineup today. Uh, so we know not exactly who's going to the World Cup, but we know the 28 players who might be going. And if you look at the lineup, you'll see mo uh, most of those players, they kind of played abroad. Uh, they played their football outside of Korea. Uh, at least about half of them do that or have in their careers. Yeah, even though Korea has its own domestic league, which within Asia is pretty strong, a lot of their national team don't play in the country or you know, have spent a lot of their footballing careers outside of the country. Outside of Europe in general, you find a lot of nations like that where they don't have too many domestic players in their World Cup, especially in their World Cup starting 11. Take Korea, for example, their, their best two players, Ki Sung-young and Son Heung-min, both play in the Premier League. And it's kind of like that for I think most of the national teams outside of Europe, to be honest. What does Korean football look like if most of the players play in other leagues and they don't necessarily play in Korea? How does that all kind of meld and mesh together when they when they come together? Imagine Korea's tactics are going to be very possession based. That's how they've um, they've set up in a lot of their recent friendlies, especially their friendly against Northern Ireland, which they you kind of use that friendly to model the Sweden match. Uh, Northern Ireland and Sweden both play very similarly, have strong defenses. Uh, so expect Korea to try and play some possession based football. They've also been working on a kind of counter attack based game as well for when they play against tougher teams, like when they face Germany. So can maybe imagine when they play Germany, they'll play 4-4-2 but play two lines of four very close together to try and prevent Germany from having too much space on the ball and against Mexico probably a similar kind of tactic but then in the Sweden game I'd expect Korea will try and play a possession-based game. Hmm. So could you kind of walk me through Korean qualification was it smooth was it was it tough how did that go? 
It was anything but smooth. Um, they qualified without having to go in the playoffs, so that's a, a big plus. But it's kind of like how qualification in North America is set up, where you have like a group first, and then you go to, like in North America, it's like the hex, but in Asia, there's kind of two hexes, and the top two teams in each of those goes through, and then the third base teams in each one play each other for a playoff and then play against a team from a different confederation to go to the World Cup. The first stage, Korea won all of their matches, didn't concede a single goal, and then China changed the rules. A lot of the Korean defensive players at that time played in the Chinese Super League because for teams in China and in Asia in general, you can have three foreign players from any country and then one from Asia. So they picked three Brazilians for their strikers and then one Korean for their central defender or defensive midfielder. So all of the Korean defense and defensive midfielders were all playing in China at that time. Then China changed their rule right at the end of the transfer window. So these players couldn't get moved off to a different club and they changed it so they could only have basically three foreigners. So that Korean player didn't get any game time for about six months. Um, so that really affected the national team because the manager had kind of had a tricky situation where he had to choose either to select not the best players or to select the best ones who weren't getting any match time. Was that Chinese rule done with international football in mind or was that just more something they implemented for their own domestic reasons? Well, they implemented it to try and get more Chinese players playing in the league, but it seems a bit of a half-baked idea. The Chinese Football Association seem to be making things up as they go along when it comes to rule changes, and they'll just drop them on the clubs without the clubs really having time to adapt. You know, everywhere else in the world, you'd give the clubs you know, six months or a year to sort themselves out before the rule kind of comes into effect, but in China, it comes into effect the next day. Because of that, it really, really hurt Korea's qualification to the extent that they nearly missed out on the top two spots. What are the kind of expectations for Korea in this World Cup group and this World Cup in general? Yeah, so with two games left to go before they qualified, Korea sacked their manager because of bad results. They sacked their German manager, Uli Stilohe, and brought in the domestic manager, Shin Tae-yong. And because they made that, that change... Uh, Shin Tae-yong's kind of remit was just to qualify for the World Cup. There's kind of high expectations in general for Korea, mainly because of 2002 when they reached the semi-finals. But at the same time, a lot of people are not really expecting them to do much in this World Cup. A lot of people I've spoken to have expected them to get zero points. They might do a bit better than that, but uh, qualification is going to be pretty tricky. Mm. So if you could kind of pinpoint a couple of players who you think the world might not know that much about that you feel could have a good World Cup. The player who I normally would recommend here, Kim Min Jae, uh, he's really young defender. He's about 20 years old, I think, central defender. So for that age, to be a national team player in a top country is pretty rare. He would have been my pick, but a few weeks ago he got injured. Uh, at the moment, his leg's in plaster, so he's not in the World Cup side. They were kind of 50-50, but it looks like he's not going to be fit in time, so he didn't make the final squad. Uh, so because he's out, I think the player for everybody to look out for is uh, probably EJ Song. He's the guy who nobody will know because he plays in Korea. He plays for John Book, uh, who are the best team in Korea. But you can expect a lot of top European sides will be watching him and may see him after the World Cup make that move over to Europe to yeah, the Bundesliga or the Premier League or somewhere like that. So he's a name to look out for, EJ Song. The rest of the top players already play in Europe. Players like Kwon Cheng-hoon, who's having a really great season uh, in Dijon in France. A bit of a surprise call-up uh, was Isangu. He plays for Hellas Verona. He used to be at uh, Barcelona uh, until last season. Then he moved to Hellas Verona. He's really young. He's about 20 years old as well. All right. So I got two more questions. Who do you think is going to win the World Cup? I'm asking this to everyone. 
I mean, a lot of people have said Brazil, but to me, still, I think Germany are going to win it, to be honest. They've just got the strong, strongest squad, in my opinion. Every other country maybe has a, a weak point somewhere. Germany don't have any weak points. And uh, last question. Is there anything about South Korean football that I haven't asked you that you feel like people should know or might want to know that you think's particularly interesting? Uh, or perhaps some military service. Um, this is very interesting because Sun Hung-min has not done his military service yet. Of course, he's Korea's big star. He's at Tottenham Hotspur having the season of his life at the moment. But unless he gets a military exemption, uh, at the end of next season, he'll have to come back to Korea and spend two years in the army. Uh, when I say in the army, that means he'll be playing for the army football team um, who play in a domestic league. In Korea's squad at the moment for the World Cup, there's only one player who's in that team. So there's normally like one or two good players in there. But to get an exemption, he has this one shot, which is in the uh, the Asian Games, which happen in Indonesia in August and September. So he's going to come back to Spurs a bit late next season and hopefully he'll come back with a gold medal so he'll have that military exemption. If uh, Korea don't win a goal, then uh, you can see perhaps his career at Spurs is going to get cut a little bit short. Interesting. Okay, so are there like age limits to where like you have to complete it before you turn 30 or something like that? Like how does that work in general? Yeah, I think it's generally uh, 28 so you have to start it. A lot of players now, if they feel they've got potential and they feel like they're good enough to get into the military squad, they're trying to do it a bit earlier so mm. that they can get it out of the way and then maybe get a move to Europe, it seems. But generally, yeah, players get to do it then. But if they get an Olympic medal or if they get an Asian Games gold medal, then they get an exemption. And at the last Asian Games, Korea won that. They got a gold medal. So loads of players got an exemption. And in the Olympics in London, they got a bronze medal. So a load of players like uh, Ki Sung Young and stuff got their exemption then. So uh, it hasn't really been noticed much in Europe because all of the Korean players playing there at the moment all have exemptions. But uh, Son Heung-min, he missed both of those tournaments. Uh, in the first one, he wanted to continue his career at Hamburg so he didn't get into the Olympic side in London. And then Leverkusen wouldn't release him for the Asian Games in Incheon in South Korea, where Korea won a gold medal. So he doesn't have an exemption, unlike most of the Koreans who are playing in Europe. Wow. I didn't know that. That's quite interesting. Because <laughs> he's, like, like, like you said, he's having a really, really good season. If he does it again next year, then he might have to go to the military. Are there any like people who question like how come... If, if I'm going to be playing football for my military service, how come I just can't do it abroad? Like, how come I have to do it here if I'm just going to be playing football still? Um, or maybe, do you remember uh, Park ji who played very briefly for Arsenal and before that he played for Monaco? When uh, he was at Monaco, I think his lawyer tried something for him to get French citizenship uh, so he could avoid the military service. And because of that, everybody in Korea hated him for like five years. Even though in the end he got an, ex an exemption from, I think it was from the Olympics in London, he got an exemption. You can probably expect Sun Heung-min to do the military service if he doesn't get that gold medal. Does the World Cup have any ramifications if they get to like a semi-final or... Legally, no. But when Korea got to the well, when they got as far as the quarterfinals in 2002, before they got to the semifinals, the president at that time gave all of the players in that squad a military exemption. So even though it's not a legal requirement, uh, the president probably would do something like that if Korea did well in the in the World Cup. Now, the big boys of the group, Germany. Guten Tag. Guten Tag. Basically, I've, I've, as you guys have probably heard over the course of the week and will continue to hear, I'm asking people, you know, who's going to win the World Cup? And the answer I've heard over and over again is Germany. It's interesting because they didn't win the Euros and they won the last World Cup. And when was the last time someone won back-to-back -back World Cups? Brazil, 
1968-1962. So why would it be Germany now? Um, Closer and Bart Simpson are huge. Who is Bart Simpson for those unfamiliar? Philip Lahm. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) That's always funny. I don't know why. I've heard it a thousand times, but he does kind of look like Bart Simpson still. But yeah, they're basically everyone's favorite to win the World Cup. You can't blame people if you look at the squad, but if you look at statistics, if since the 50s and 60s, nobody's won back-to-back World Cups, obviously it only happens four years, but still, there's been enough to where you can probably make this correlation. Countries don't usually win back-to-back World Cups. Nope. Although although I would argue Brazil really should have won three in a row because that 98 World Cup should have been theirs. So, so they should have really won three in a row. So this German national team is it's stacked from goalkeeper through defense, through midfield, through attack. They got players everywhere in every position. They could have made like their second team would probably make, you know, a World Cup semifinal or quarterfinal. So again, it makes sense why people are picking them to win the World Cup. But I don't know. There's just something that tells me they're probably not going to win just because everyone thinks they will win. That's precisely why they're not going to win, because it's 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 too obvious. And that's not how it <laughs> works. Um, when a team is that talented, then all eyes are on them. Whenever all eyes are on that team, they never win. Look at Brazil in 2006. All eyes were on them. One of the most talented teams so to, to never win the World Cup was that Brazil team in 06. That team had a peak Ronaldinho, a peak Kaka, a peak Adriano, that Cafu, Roberto Carlos, an imagined role, Robinho, Ronaldo. It was a ridiculous team, but they, they, they didn't win. So... This is going to be our interview with Lars Pullman, who does the, the Yellow Wall podcast. Um, really, really good conversation that we have with Lars. So this is it right now. Hi, my name is Lars Pollmann. I am a freelance football writer from Germany. Uh, used to work for Bleacher Report. And at the moment, I'm working for Fußball.News, a news website in, in German. I am part of the Yellow Wallpot crew, which is, by my recognition at least, the only English language. And if it's not the only, it's certainly the best English language uh, Borussia Dortmund podcast in the world. So if you want to check uh, that out, it's going to be an interesting off-season for Dortmund, I'm Sure. The Bundesliga is basically all about pressing, counter-pressing, which is something Jürgen Klopp is very uh, successful in England with. But in the Bundesliga, seeing as everybody does it, it's getting kind of stale by now. But the national team, and that's something they can be proud of and Löw deserves a lot of credit for. Uh, they've developed their own identity away from uh, what most of the Bundesliga teams do. They really relish possession. They are quick Uh, on the attack without everything being on the counter if you understand what I'm trying to say it's very fluid the the builder play of the national team is so much better than basically all the German teams maybe even including Bayern so even if I don't really like them necessarily on a personal level I can appreciate that they are probably the most aesthetically pleasing side that's representing German football even if you include ultra successful Bayern Munich is it going to be 4-3-3 will he change like how, how did you guys play in qualification yeah the thing is Germany being so good these days uh, and qualifications being watered down a little bit, in my opinion, we can't really take too much away from those months in between tournaments. It's basically a a testing period uh, under more earnest circumstances for Germany. So they played quite a few games with a back three, oftentimes not really having more than one and a half true center halves in there. I think at the the World Cup in Russia, Löw will probably go back to a back four. There are quite a few injury concerns in the team and they, they haven't really played with their best 11 in quite a while. I would say probably since the since the, the Euros in 2016, they haven't been able to play 
close to what they would probably call their best 11. So they, they are flexible in a way that they have enough intelligent players who understand space and, and time on the pitch to basically do whatever they want. When you have someone like Ilkay Gundogan or Joshua Kimmich or Thomas Müller, Mesut Özil, the list goes on basically. They can do pretty much everything on the field just because they're all so intelligent. They all understand how to uh, position themselves on the field. So it might start as a 4-3-3 but turn into a 3-5-2 or whatever uh, based on just how the game is going but nominally I, I would presume it's going to be 4-3-3-ish to start those games. So am I right in saying that you guys were undefeated in European qualification? You played 10 games and you got 30 points. I mean as you said it's kind of watered down with other kind of teams that are in UEFA but um, I've talked to a lot of journalists and you guys one of the questions I'm asking people is who's going to win the World Cup and I've heard Germany, 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 Brazil, France, Germany, Germany, Germany like after that qualification of going undefeated, what is the expectation or the vibe of kind of German fans? Uh, Löw has reached the final four of every tournament he's coached in, won both the World Cup in 2014 and the Confederations Cup in 2017 with a very young team. So the, the expectations are always the same. Germany at a World Cup are expecting to play seven games. And it would be a slight disappointment if the last of those games would be the, the small final, as we say in Germany, the playoff for third place. So most people are expecting at least a final appearance but also remembering 2014 where uh, the final versus Argentina was very much on on a knife's edge more than a final appearance might be a little too much even for German fans. What are your opinions of of Yoki Lowe? Do you, do you find that he's a good manager or do you think he concedes as you say he's been to like all these semifinals and finals? Do you think he's a good manager or is it just a byproduct of having three world-class squads of which he can pick from? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously difficult to say how much of an impact the talent pool of Germany has on the results he's presenting. But I mean, he's done it for so long. He's been the, the coach of this team since 2006. It's got to be at least to some extent about him and not only the talent pool, but certainly there's an interplay between those factors. But I, I didn't used to rate uh, live altogether highly especially in those 2008 2010 tournaments that to me felt like germany just having pretty good squads and those tournaments not being at the highest level but the way germany played both at the world cup in in brazil and also the euros even though they uh, crashed out against france in incidentally their best game of the entire tournament in my opinion he really showed me something there that goes beyond just managing uh, the personnel that was available to him so i'm not sure i would call him a great coach you know in the in the pantheon of great coaches of the world but i think he's plenty good enough to lead germany to another world cup title mm. if you could pick out maybe one or two players who you feel like they're going to have a really good tournament who would you say i think the the man who's going to turn the most heads just because he's not quite as known as some of the other guys i think joshua kimmich the right back uh, of bayern has really turned heads at the champions league level this season scored in both games in the semi-finals against real madrid for example the, the euros in 2016 were his first tournament he kind of got his feet wet hadn't had too much experience playing right back actually being more of a center half under Pep Guardiola uh, for Bayern in his first season back then and he's really turned into a, an attacking machine uh, Germany had Philipp Lahm for all those years and I think the argument can be made that attacking wise he's already better than Philipp Lahm has ever been from the right back position so I think he's going to be a huge factor in in everything they do going forward and then 
the second guy, maybe it's my my personal sympathy playing a part here, but I really want to see uh, Ukai Gundogan doing really well. He's had so much injury uh, or bad injury luck over the last few years, but uh, stayed healthy for a few months now, an integral part of Guardiola's squad at Man City that has dominated English football. As I said before, one of those super intelligent players who understand time and space. We could actually see him and Tony Kroos play together as a as a double pivot, as, especially in in group games against Korea or something where it's not necessary for Germany to play a true holding midfielder or someone like Sami Khedira who's got a bit more physicality than Gundogan. So uh, I I think this could be a tournament where he shows his his class that he wasn't able to show because of injuries earlier in his career. Especially as someone who watches Dortmund week in week out, do you feel like Marco Reus is going to be impactful in this tournament? A few weeks ago, I would have said Marco Reus doesn't even deserve to go to the World Cup. I'm pretty sure he would go anywhere just because he's uh, missed two tournaments with injuries and, and uh, Joachim Löw is not going to take a, a third tournament away from him. And now Serge Gnabry of Hoffenheim, who's been terrific in the second half of the season, is injured. So there's actually a spot open now for Reus. I would also, in the last few games, he's kind of turned things around. We have to remember he was once again injured for about nine months uh, earlier in the season. So he's not at the absolute height of his uh, performance this season, I would imagine. So if he can stay healthy until the mid of June or July for the, the meaty end of the World Cup, I do think he's going to make an impact. But there's so much competition for the for those spots uh, on the attacking wings in Germany's team. Draxler doesn't play too much of a role at Paris Saint-Germain, but Joachim Löw really rates him. But these tournaments, there's always, it feels to me like some Someone who's not really thought of as a starter at the first uh, for the first game or two, who's going to make a, a huge impact, and there's no reason why that shouldn't be Marco Reus this time around. Lastly, on kind of the injury front, Manuel Neuer hasn't played much all this season. I think he's played maybe three, four, five games all season. What are the kind of thoughts about him? Does he move right into being number one? Uh, if it were up to me, I wouldn't call up Manuel Neuer to the World Cup just because, as you said, he's not played since uh, mid-September, I believe, with tricky broken foot situation. And uh, if I don't see it, I can't call him up. Now, it's Manuel Neuer we're talking about. He's the captain of the national team, so obviously he's going to play. If he's uh, available, they are likely to call up four goalkeepers initially with presumably Kevin Trapp of uh, Paris Saint-Germain, the, the fourth guy. And if Neuer shows he's not ready to to feature at the tournament, he's going to stay home. But I can't see him going as the number two uh, to Marc-André Testegen, even though, in my opinion, Testegen has probably been the next to Jan Oblak, perhaps the, the best goalkeeper in Europe this season. So it's not like they, they need to rush things with Manuel Neuer. But again, he's the captain. He's maybe the, the single mo- single biggest reason Germany won the, the 2014 World Cup. So there's obviously a lot of loyalty towards him from from Joachim Löw, who's a loyal manager to start things off. So I think Manuel Neuer is going to start, but personally, I think that's a mistake. Let's talk about strikers. Is Muller going to start at number nine here, or is it going to be Timo Werner? Is it going to be Sandro Wagner from from Bayern? Who's who's going to be up front for you guys? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Timo Werner. He started most of the game since breaking into the team. He's kind of the missing link. Germany never had a great number nine under uh, Joachim Löw with Miroslav Klose being up towards their age already when Löw took over, even though he kept kicking about until 2014 with the national team. But he wasn't necessarily a great player for them. Uh, They mixed around with... Uh, Mario Götze as a false number nine. Thomas Müller starting a few games here and there, but now they have a real centre 
center forward who fits their style, who makes all those runs in the channels, who is really good finisher. Not necessarily the most physical guy, but very quick. So uh, I would be surprised if it wasn't him, but that doesn't mean they, they won't tinker around against certain opponents. We could see a more physical true number nine, whether that's Sandro Wagner of Bayern or maybe Mario Gomez of Stuttgart. They are both in pretty good form in the last few weeks. That's That remains to be seen, but at the very least, they now have true striking options, which is something they lacked for most of Löw's tenure, in my opinion. Mm. If, if I had to get you to pick a team that's not Germany that you feel will probably win the World Cup or is in there, who wins? I mean, Germany just played Brazil and Spain in a span of, I think, like four days in March, and those were two fairly impressive performances. Uh, so... I think Spain, Brazil will be there or thereabouts. Uh, France might have the best talent pool, but I don't really trust in Didier Deschamps. If I had to pick besides Germany, I would probably go with Spain. But, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling strongly about any of these teams. So I, I think this is going to be a World Cup where in those final moments, in the semifinal, in the final, the, the form on the day will be really decisive, even more so than, than usual, where, you know, one or two teams are dominating the entire thing. I could see, you know, five or six teams being contenders for the, for the final spots. Are, are there any national teams that do interest you? You've, you've already said, you know, that Germany aren't that particularly interesting to you. Are there any that you look out for that actually do give you kind of like, oh, I'm interested to see what they're going to do? I am actually a fan of a team that's not going to make it so uh, to the world cup and that is italy so oh, uh man. thanks thanks for rubbing salt in that wound um, <laughs> do you know what but, do you know what? every time i look at like the tables and like all right i'm gonna talk to this person i'm gonna talk to that person i always like like where's my italian i need to talk to an yeah. italian and then yeah. i always remember like they, they haven't made it like holland is kind of weird in that way that they didn't make it but italy not being there just it feels wrong you know it, yeah but you know it was deserved in in both the, the qualification period and the playoffs against sweden Sweden uh, is the but, other team that's in your group, isn't it? It's Mexico, Sweden, yeah, right, South right. Korea, and you guys. Yeah, that could have been interesting, but <sighs> damn Italians. Anyway, is there anything I haven't asked you that you feel is particular? <laughs> you don't know what I'm going to ask, but this is what I've been asking about people, but I don't know what, how you're going to take this question. Is there anything I haven't asked you about the German national team that you find particularly interesting? I think everybody knows very much about the German team by now just because it's been the same group of people largely for what feels like an eternity now. At least eight years with Thomas Müller, Mesut Özil, Mats Hummels, Jerome Boateng, Manuel Neuer. So there are a couple of new faces here and there, but the nexus of the team is still the same. So I don't have anything now. So moment of truth for group F. I think we, we both have Germany, obviously. Mm. And then it's between Mexico, South Korea, and Sweden. I think Mexico, probably. Just to hold on to that streak that they have. You know what? I think I'm going to roll with South Korea. This is being recorded. I'm not, I, I don't think I'm as convinced about this Mexican side as I I think Chicharito is a lot, I think there are a lot of much older players now. And I think this generation have maybe passed it. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I think South Korea, even if they're not as good as, as what they used to be, I just feel like if that could be a decisive game. And I think South Korea could just edge out Mexico. All right. So, yeah, that is our Group F preview. Um, again, I would like to thank Cesar steve nima and lars for coming on and helping us out again all of the links to people's podcasts and their twitters and all that kind of stuff is going to be in the description of the podcast we really appreciate them coming on and helping us out so um we are at talking tactics i'm at daniel to look half hope working if people find you half hope pot has half hope pot indeed all right so tomorrow is going to be group g 
the penultimate group of the World Cup. Remember, if you haven't listened to group E, D, C, B, or A, go listen to those if you haven't already. Yeah, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, Instagram, leave an iTunes review, and just get in contact with us if you've you've heard anything that you like or don't like. So yeah, we'll see you guys tomorrow. Peace. Sports Social Podcast Network.